Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Today, I would like to talk about Sir Isaac Newton and his book Optics, where he first identifies the colors of the individual hues within the spectrum of, uh, of white light within visible light. Sir Isaac Newton and Roy G. Biv. Specifically, this episode is going to be titled, Is Indigo the Pluto of Hues? Is Indigo the Pluto of Hues? Now, why am I talking about Pluto and Indigo at the same time? What do they have to do with each other? Well, in Sir Isaac Newton's book, Optics, of 1704, uh, and the second edition was printed in 1730, Newton describes how he arrived at the total number of hues or color families within the uh, band of uh, spectral white light, that number being seven, The reason he came up with seven different hues was specifically to match the number of notes in a harmonious musical octave as first described by Pythagoras. And Pythagoras based that number on what were referred to as the known heavenly bodies. So the objects that the ancient Greeks knew about in our solar system, specifically the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So my question is, if Pythagoras had thought to call the Earth a heavenly body, then there would have been eight known heavenly bodies. Would he have then designated eight notes in his harmonious octave and then would newton have come up with eight hues instead of the seven and so my plan today is to discuss newton's book he describes in it very specifically how he arrived at the number seven hues uh, and his various experiments And then take a look at maybe arguments for and against indigo being recognized as an actual hue. Or should it be downgraded like Pluto was from planet status to dwarf planet status by the International Astronomical Union in 2006? So that is the question. So a little history on how Newton arrived at his, uh, his number, how he refracted light, 
and projected the rainbow and counted the numbers, the hues. And then a little bit of history about you know, what happened after that <laughs> in terms of how uh, colorists and, and um, artists and other thinkers have embraced or rejected the idea of, of indigo and also orange. There's a bit of a question mark hovering over orange, too. So, here we go. In Newton's book, Optics, he basically goes out, almost like writing a diary, he describes a number of experiments that he did uh, step-by-step, uh, uh, in a step-by-step -step fashion. He describes how he turned his studio into a large camera obscura by blocking out all the light entering into the room and then making a slit. I believe the opening that he made in the window to allow light in was, was uh, longer than it was wide. It was kind of an up and down uh, shape oval, which he then projected. Uh, light came through that. He put a lens in front of that light beam and uh, focused it on a prism the prism refracted the light wavelengths and broke them into their individual parts so they could be observed when he then directed that beam at like a white surface on the other side of the room. So he used a couple of different materials. I think he used like a white painted board, he used a piece of paper. He, he did a number of these experiments and he lists them in chronological order. And so in the first one, he describes what I just told you about how he set up his studio. And in his first experiment, he describes how he observed the colors, the refracted colors of red, yellow, green, blue, and violet that were projected out of the prism. And he noted uh, their various characteristics, like how... Um, like how, how wide they were according to each other, um, how much space they took up. Curiously, he spelled the word blue, B-L-E-W, as in a verb. Later in the book, he switches and starts spelling it B-L-U-E. But anyway, so the first, that first experiment, there is no mention of orange or indigo. Orange... He writes of orange as being a compound mixture of uh, red and yellow light, homogeneal uh, light wavelengths of red and yellow. And that is similar to how the color orange had been described for centuries before, going back to Aristotle. It was re Aristotle referred to orange as yellow-red. So up until that point, there had been like a 2,000-year history of basically referring to what we call orange as yellow-red or red-yellow. And the orange tree was brought to Europe um, in the early 1600s, or eh, no, I got to look that up. But the, the term orange as a color being uh, derived from the color of the orange fruit of the orange tree, so it became a partitioned color meaning something is orange, not of the color of an orange, <laughs> if that makes any sense. But that 
that that process came into the English language in the early 1600s, so only about 50 years before Newton was conducting his experiments in the later 1600s. So uh, that color in and of itself may not have been as obviously part of the vernacular of color notation, hence perhaps Newton may not have thought to include it in his initial experiment. Although in the in the experiments to follow, he does include orange um, sooner before he arrives at uh, at identifying indigo as being between blue and violet. So later in the pages of optics, uh, Newton writes on his process of of naming the colors and also assigning a ratio of how how big they are against each other, like what amount he makes a color circle, which is one of the first. It's not, he wasn't the first to take, to make a color wheel or what's called a color circle, but he, he, he assigned the value or the ratio of each color on his wheel according to the harmonic octave as well. Writing in optics, uh, that the colors of the visible spectrum, uh, quote, divided in a manner of a musical chord, let GM be produced to X, that MX may be equal to GM and conceive. And then he goes into, you know, he's doing all this science stuff that I kind of don't understand, all this notation, right? But then he says, to be in proportion to one another as the numbers one, eight ninths, five sixths, three-quarters, two-thirds, three-fifths, nine-sixteenths, one-half, and so forth to represent the chords of the key and of a tone, a third minor, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth major, a seventh, and an eighth above that key. And the intervals... M-A-A-Y, and the notation of each hue, will be the spaces which the several colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, take up. Then he writes to divide the color wheel proportional to the seven musical tones, intervals in the eight sounds, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa, sol, contained in an eighth that is proportional to the numbers and he goes through and does it again so on a musical the octave it starts and it ends on the same note just one above so there's seven notes but it leads to the eighth which is higher if i have that correct i'm not a musician but he essentially lays out this whole like scientific process of conducting experiments and collecting data and arriving at conclusions based on a scientific method, and then at the very end, throws in an indigo just so that he could match up with this whole musical thing. And I think what it did is it kind of, the ramifications of it kind of set up a whole argument against him in the years to come, specifically by uh, Goethe and Schopenhauer in the, like a hundred years later in the, um, early 1800s where they just take him to task on how wrong he is and they really beat him up 
and I'll uh, have I'll have an episode on Goethe and uh, Schopenhauer and how much they hated Isaac Newton, <laughs> and basically created what I'm seeing through my research here as a split between the physicists and psychologists or psychiatry and how the two disciplines started to view color arrangement and the whole basis of our experience of color and perception as like a divergent path that I think has had ramifications for how color theory has been taught and studied over the last several centuries and specifically since the time of the Bauhaus which was incredibly influential and so it kind of has an, a, an effect on what's happening today as far as like trying to understand some of this stuff. Why are kindergartners taught that Roy G. Biv is an acronym for the primary colors or, or, or the colors of the rainbow and even why are red, yellow, and blue the primary colors and and I and I do I have a podcast um, there a series of podcasts that are about the primary colors and some of the history and how they relate there but this is where a lot of it starts I think a lot of it starts with I with Newton's book optics at the beginning of the 1700s it was really one of the first things to come along to challenge Aristotle's concepts of perception and how it related to and how artists and designers like embraced those ideas and used them for all practicality and in, in their work and then this became the dogma that Goethe and Schopenhauer eventually challenged and probably successfully overturned to a certain degree but then created their own dogma to like kind of stamp on top of it and that's a whole nother can of worms. But, um, but yeah, they really loathe this dude. <laughs> so anyway, um, back to our story of indigo and relation to whether or not it should be considered a hue. So there, there's other, so I went to work trying to figure out what is the argument for and against outside of that kind of arbitrary, you know, they, they were, I read about how, the, uh, Newton, um, like there's accusations or whatever that he considered he was into mathematical mysticism. So really it's like the core of it is like challenging what is empirical science, what can be trusted if somebody says, I did these experiments and this is what I found, and you can do those experiments as well, right? And so that's like this like data and then he's just throwing in this other color at the end so that he could align with a more, uh, with like a mythologicalization of the color wheel so that it, it not only just relates to like, these are the colors and you can mix them and do whatever you want with them, but this is about the planets. This is huge, you know, the solar system. It's problematic on a lot of levels, I think. Now, one reason I was kind of interested in learning more about indigo and really getting to the bottom of it is I've always thought that indigo was more uh, like a shade of blue-green than a shade of blue-violet, uh, you know, so more between blue and green rather than between 
blue and violet. So like Levi's jeans are dyed in indigo. And I've always seen those as, as being a bit closer to the green side of things. And so I went on Pantone's website, and you can look up the colors, and they have an indigo that they describe in terms of their RGB scale of 1 to 20, or it's a, it's a rating that they assign a, a number from 1 to 255. And I believe 255 has something to do with a byte of information and a bit. Bytes and bits. There's something there that I haven't been able to figure out yet, but I think that's the basis of that whole system, why RGB goes to uh, 255. Anyhow, Pantone says of indigo that it has a red value of 72, a green value of 84, and a blue value of 112. So according to Pantone, there's more green in indigo than there is red. Moving on from there, the Gamblin Paint Company doesn't list or classify any of their colors belonging to the hue or what they call color families uh, of indigo. They don't, they don't have a category for indigo at all for any of their colors. Golden, similarly, does not include indigo in their color index nomenclature. They list uh, 10 different possible categories, which are red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, brown, white, black, and metallic. <laughs> Albert Monsell, in his seminal color space book, A Color Notation, it's called, um, from, uh, I want to say this was the early 1900s. There's an edition in 1946 that I have. Um, but I think it was originally published before then. At any rate, he does not list indigo. He has 10 hue families as well. They include red, yellow-red, yellow, yellow-green, green, blue-green, blue, blue purple-blue, purple, and red-blue. So there again, he's got yellow-red instead of orange. Munsell was, I don't think he was a big fan of uh, having the word orange as a color. And I found on, um, on the Rochester Institute of Technology, uh, on their website, they have archived all of Monsell's diaries. And it's really, uh, really fascinating to read this. Uh, he wrote down everything or had people write down stuff for him. And I found an entry on November 14th, 1908, a transcript. I had somebody write a transcript of a lecture that uh, Monsell did at MIT, and um, it's his lecture was titled "Errors in Color Teaching," where a third person, quoting Monsell, writes, "Quote: He criticized the present method of teaching that red, yellow, and blue are primary colors." and the basis of color harmony, claiming that the true basis is red, green, and yellow. And there's an asterisk there next to yellow, and I couldn't find the link to what that asterisk means. I'm wondering if it might have been a typo, and it should be that that should have been either violet or blue as opposed to yellow, but I'm not sure. Um, that's the aside. Okay, back to the quote. 
This is due to the action of the retina. That's why I think it must be because um, uh, red, green, and blue are the primary colors of uh, additive light and, and the retina. Anyway, okay, I'm trying to read this quote. <laughs> I keep interrupting myself. Okay, back to the quoting. The correct complementary colors, he said, Munsell said, are red and a blue-green, green and purple, which I think his purple would have been more like what we would call magenta, violet blue and yellow, and violet blue being more like ultramarine blue and yellow. Um, and then back to the quote, the old color circle of red, yellow, and blue gave orange an undue field. So he thought that orange got too much credit for being in there if uh, red, yellow, and blue were the primary colors. Going back to indigo being closer to green as per my thoughts and Pantone's nomenclature, there is evidence against that to argue against that that idea and that the word indigo is used much more broadly and has been over history. This uh, a color theorist by the name of Mary Philadelphia Merrifield wrote about the use of indigo uh, by painters from the uh, 12th to the 18th centuries in her introduction to a book. She translated a number of Italian painting treatises. I believe they were all Italian uh, from covering those eras from, um, well, like I just said, the 12th to 18th century. She did that work in 1849. So uh, her book was published in 1849, and the book is amazing because the introduction that she has is about 150 pages long, where she goes to Italy and meets with art historians and artists and art restorers, which are all kind of the same people. They didn't really, the art historian, the artist was the art restorer and the artist, you know. Um, it's very mysterious too because she, re she refers to these people as Senior A, Senior B, and Senior C, never naming who they are. Merrifield describes learning of uh, pigment that the term indigo was applied to any blue pigment that was derived from organic materials. So in pigment making, you might have like um, rocks that you bust up and minerals, and so that's, that's like inorganic material. Um, but they're crushing like lapis lazuli to make um, ultramarine blue. Well, indigo could be something that uh, comes from any kind of organic thing and evidently one of the most common ones were the scum that they sifted off the top of vats of fermenting woad which evidently this woad is a type of cabbage so they'd ferment this cabbage and this scum would rise up that was like this crazy blue color or something and uh, they they scrape that off the top of the vat let it dry out and turn into a powder and mix it into their paints and they call that indigo so cabbage we got cabbage that they call indigo and they've got an actual plant that's called indigo and they you know, can um, you know press that plant and get that blue dye out of it 
So that kind of shoots my theory about indigo being more of like a green than a blue because during the time that Newton was writing indigo, that term would have probably been thrown around for any number of blues shades from between green and, and, and violet. And so I mentioned that thinkers like Goethe and, and um, Schopenhauer really took Newton to task on, on this. Another person I covered in, in one of the other podcasts who is basically kind of responsible for describing optical mixing in his book, uh, Modern Chromatics, was a person by the name of Ogden Rood, who wrote Modern Chromatics um, in 1879. And that book is essentially written as a textbook uh, for students. And it presents all the known knowledge of the day about optics and human color perception, as well as a great deal of information about materials and, and paint mixing and, and stuff like that. And in the book, Rude writes, it will well be noted that the term indigo, originally introduced by Newton, has been entirely rejected in this work and ultramarine substituted for it. Beasold suggests that this changed some time ago based on indigo and its dinginess, and he just keeps going on and really is beating up indigo, <laughs> beating up indigo and Newton, uh, and comes to the conclusion of saying that like Prussian blue might be more like what indigo is, but uh, great disagreement coming down. Well, and it's it's uh, there's there's evidence even that that Newton himself may not have been able to actually perceive the color indigo. And that evidence comes right from Newton's own book, Optics. So the poor guy basically wrote, he wrote this book and provided the clearest evidence to throw away his ideas. He did it to himself. It could be that Newton couldn't see indigo, which wouldn't really have any bearing on whether or not it's a true hue or not. But it just kind of goes a little bit further to like the why question. Why indigo? Why not a color between orange and red or yellow and green? Okay, so there's a concept that people who can see the true indigo color within the band of spectral light have what is called heptachromatic vision, meaning they can perceive seven primary colors and they can see that indigo as clear as, as and as distinct as the violet is from the the blue is from the green but most most people have hexachromatic vision which can easily distinguish this just six primaries so have a bit of trouble like sussing out that range of where indigo might exist and so Within the book of optics, actually on page 251, Newton describes in his seventh experiment the, about how he's refracting the light onto the surface, and he had placed a piece of paper, and then he, where he's seeing the rainbow, and then quote, whilst an assistant whose eyes for distinguishing colors were more critical than mine did by right lines, and then some nomenclature of color, drawn across the spectrum. 
note the confines of the colors, and then he goes on to describe the content. So he, so in his final experiment, which includes indigo as part of the, the nomenclature now, he is describing how he had an assistant who had better color vision than himself go up and mark on the piece of paper where the borders and the boundaries for each hue were and then he measured them. For me, there's a lot of question marks as to whether or not indigo should be considered part of the mix and whether or not indigo should be downgraded like poor Pluto was from a planet to a dwarf planet, which I still don't know how I feel about that. So maybe there's an argument for keeping indigo in the mix because it was unfair what happened to Pluto. Why am I picking on indigo? Uh, the crazy thing for me is just in how the arbitrariness of wanting to match the number of the planets and the moon and all of that kind of stuff and how that affected what was supposedly true science and how that started a, a wave going through into the future of real disagreement between different camps uh, thinking about and theorizing about color, color harmony, color arrangement between like the physicists, the, the Newton types, the Otswalds, um, the psychologists, the poets um, like Goethe and Schopenhauer, like um, philosophers, how those all kind of come together to be included in our color perception of trying to describe what this process is. So maybe I'll leave it at that. Is indigo the Pluto of hues? Does it matter? I guess for me, the th thought that keeps returning, or what are, the, what are the ramifications of mythologicalizing, like taking a normal human behavior, human behavior that exists, like we perceive colors all differently and all uniquely through these various systems, and to take what is just a thing that happens by virtue of existence and turning that into something else about the planets and how they're harmonizing musically. I, you know, that, I guess that's like Kepler's third law of planetary motion. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I gotta look that. But tying this all in, it's just a color. It's there. What are the implications of, of it having to be something epic on a universal scale in terms of just, like, today? It's today. So maybe on that note, I'll leave it at that with a lot of question marks. And maybe if you want to ponder these questions of indigo, you could do so by listening to the Duke Ellington composition, Mood Indigo. Google that. You can find it on YouTube. Mood Indigo, bringing it back to the music. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested and follow Chromosphere, the color theory podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. 
I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production, consulting, and editing.